Well, as you're having a seat, uh, welcome to Veritas Church. If this is one of your first times here to Veritas, welcome. Uh, my name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas, and I can say we are really, really, really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, maybe you got a connect card on the way in. Uh, would you consider filling that thing out, dropping it in the give buckets on the way uh, or at the connect table on the way out? Uh, but go ahead and grab your Bibles and you can meet me in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be again. Last week we heard from Ryan uh, that God graciously called Abram. And we got to see a little bit of Abram's faithfulness, that he walked uh, through some of the promised land. He started taking these steps of faith forward after receiving the blessing of God to, uh, to go. And Abram goes, and as he does, he starts making his way through what would be the promised land, and he's building these altars to God. And where we left off last week was a newly faithful Abraham, Abram building altars to God throughout this promised land and calling on the name of Yahweh. But this week, it's going to be a completely different story for Abram. I don't know if you watched the NBA Finals, uh, but it was kind of like the switch between Game 2 and Game 3. We saw a completely different Suns team out there. I mean, we had the Suns clicking on all cylinders with all of their players playing incredibly in Game 1 and Game 2 and then completely blowing it in Game 3 and Game 4, and eventually losing the series. What we're going to see today is a similar shift in Abram in that like he was walking faithfully with God, and then it's almost like, why did we get this story at this point? Why did we get a story of Abram falling flat on his face right after this call and seeing him walk in faith? And so today we're going to see Abram go from walking in faith to cowering in fear and to shamefully forgetting God. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some blue, uh, black hardback ones at the back of the room back there. If you grab one of those on the way in and you don't own a Bible, keep that thing. Consider it our gift to you. We love the Bible here at Veritas, and we want you to. Meet me in chapter uh, 12, verse 10. That's where our story starts today. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman, uh, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What an odd story. If this is your first time here, and maybe you're new to reading the Bible, maybe you're new to following Jesus, uh, you probably weren't expecting to hear the story about a guy who, uh, you know, is scared of getting killed, so he gives his wife away. Probably not what you were expecting this morning. 
So this story at first glance looks like it would fit right in alongside of like a wife swap episode where a guy thinks he's getting a new bride and ends up like getting a plague sent upon his whole house. See, a lot is going on in this story. and It all starts with Abram's descent from faith into fear. Uh, Hebrews 11 in, in the New Testament tells us that Abram was a man commended for his faith in God, that we're even supposed to emulate his faith. So if you're new to church and following Jesus, I think it would be good for us to clarify terms here that uh, popular culture, or maybe you've heard the term faith kind of thrown around willy-nilly, and they, there's a half-truth about faith going around that faith is just a strong belief in something. That's only half of the truth. Faith is more than just mere belief. Biblical faith requires that we do something about it, even if that something is just hoping and believing See, a good definition of walking by faith would be trusting and obeying God. Trusting and obeying God. Walking by faith like Abram would mean trusting and obeying God. Ryan told us last week that Abram, um, that that we needed to, like Abram, trust the promises of God and the God of the promise. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what happened in this story? I think that the main point for why this story of all stories makes it into the Bible at this point is one, because it happened, and two, it needs to help us see that walking by faith is filled with opportunities to trust God, moments of failure, and then eventually God's gracious rescue. And this is all of us for all time, and this is all of our stories. First, we'll look at this opportunity to trust in this story. See, Abram is a man of his time, and at this time, if you couldn't provide food from your, for your family on a daily basis, uh, you were basically looking at starvation. That means you didn't eat for that day. You know, the old phrase, you don't work, you don't eat. That was like literally happened every single day for everyone. He's afraid of starvation. He can't just pop into Aldi to grab, buy some groceries. He can't run by Harris Teeter. He can't order Grubhub on his phone. There was no like drop off the bag of flour at that time, right? That didn't happen. So Abram does the rational thing. Uh, At this point in the story, when you hear a phrase of like going down to Egypt, that should perk up your ears a little bit if you know anything about the Bible. But this is chapter 12 of the Bible, and we've got to read it like it's chapter 12 of the Bible. There's no bad connotations with that quite yet. If you didn't have stuff, you went down to Egypt because guess what? They had the stuff. They were like Sam's Club, okay? They had it all in big bulk storage all over the place. They had rivers everywhere. They had stockpiles. They were an economic powerhouse. And so you went down to Egypt if you're hungry. And so he goes down there because they have food surplus. This should have been an opportunity for Abram to exercise some trust in God. After all, we're only seven verses removed from the blessing that God gives Abraham that he's going to be blessed to be a blessing to all nations. Seven verses. Just let that sink in for a second. But instead, Abram, there's a famine in the land, and he goes down to Egypt. Rather than trust God, we see that this is a moment of failure for Abraham to trust God. I was greatly helped by a commentary, uh, Kent Hughes, It points out Abraham seems to be revealing some of his former nature in this story. See, instead of trusting God for rescue in that land of Egypt, I don't know if there's just a rumor going around that like, if you go to Egypt, they're just going to kill you and take your wife. I don't know if there's just the rumor going around. We don't really know, but he assumes it's not going to go well for me if I go down there. And so this is another opportunity where he could turn to God for rescue, turn to God for uh, his providing grace 
But Abram thought he could use his trickery to get himself out of a situation that was causing him to fear. See, apparently beforehand, he must have had a, a nickname of like Shifty Abe or Dishonest Abe instead of Honest Abe or something like that because he concocts this plan that's a pretty pl a cunning plan. And so back in Ur, he must have had a reputation like a used camel salesman or something or a politician or like, you know, he's got some, he's got some cards up his sleeve. We see Abram being pretty cunning here. Now, I want to pause here at this moment in the story where Abram's faced with something to fear and then reverting back to his old nature. And I want to say, how often do we do this all the time? How often do I do this all the time? When the going gets tough, we dig our heels in and we react in our fleshly nature rather than the new nature that God has given us. Instead of trusting the promises of God, we try to make our own promises and follow through with them. We try to do what we think is best. And we know where this story leads because you've been down that road before. I've been down that road before. It's dealt well, down the well-worn path of regret. So back to the story. Before Sarah and Abram reach Egypt, Abram reveals another fear. He says, if, if we're going to get down there and they're going to see you, they're going to see how beautiful you are. She must have been a very good-looking 65-year-old lady, right? <laughs> but <laughs> uh, they're going to see you and they're going to kill me and take you, apparently. But this is an opportunity to trust. So Shifty Abe devises a four-part scheme to protect himself. Part one, say you're my sister. Part two, anyone who approaches her will have to talk to him. At that culture, at that time, he, they would come to him. They would negotiate the bride price with the brother. And part three, that would buy time for them in Egypt for them to you know, get all of their goods at the Sam's Club down in Egypt and then get out of Dodge and be well provided for. But part four is that it's just still weird. It's totally weird. It's messed up. It's, it's dishonest. There's something strange about all of this. And this is a shady sounding plan. But in, back in that culture, the negotiation and marriage terms would have been totally normal. This would have been a common practice. Time spent in the negotiation process would buy them time to restock and then get out of town with only potentially one dude having his feelings hurt that wanted to marry his wife. So when Pharaoh hears the report, just the report of her beauty among the princes, he has, he has her taken into his harem. And this is where the story hinges. This is where Abram is outmatched. His cunning couldn't get him past this because he didn't expect this. No negotiation, no terms. She is just taken. In verse 16, it tells us that Pharaoh treats Abram well by gifting him with sheep and oxen and donkeys and servants and camels. This would have been extravagant wealth. Like, like you got the nice gold watch, you just got a Lexus, you got a BMW, whatever. He's given all of that stuff as no doubt her retroactive bride price. But could you imagine the shame Abram would have at this point in the story? Surrounded with all of that wealth, surrounded with even newfound favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. I mean, he just got a smoking hot new wife. Yet, Abram is without his own. Did you even imagine what it must have been like for Sarah? We need, we need to not forget Sarah in this. She was taken from her husband and brought into the harem of, of, of Pharaoh. How terrified would you be? Absolutely terrified. You're waiting on the call of the king at any moment. Yes, you may be surrounded by luxury in the palace of the king, 
But you're not with the one that you love. You're not with the one that you were made for, that you said, I do to, on the altar. It would have felt pretty hopeless. I mean, what's Abram going to do? Going to run up to the palace with a stick? No, he would be killed for sure. This is not a superhero story here. This is a dark moment in the story. I don't know if you've noticed yet in this passage, but from verses 10 through 16, there is no mention of God. There's no mention of Yahweh. This is all Abram's doing. This is all their scheming and planning up until this point. But in verse 17, look at it. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah. See, God, even though Abram had seemingly forgotten about God in the story so far, God has not forgotten about them. God's not forgotten about Sarah. God has not forgotten about Abram. God shows up to rescue them even when they forget him. So, God afflicts Pharaoh and his whole house with these great plagues because of Sarah, his wife. And we'll talk about those plagues in a minute. But God shows his power to defend Abram and makes good on the covenant that he established back in verse 3. Remember verse 3 of chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you, and on him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is making good on his word that he promised to Abram here. Now, Taking Abram's wife seems like a pretty good qualifier for dishonoring Abram. So God sends a curse on Pharaoh and his whole house, everyone in his family. The, the word here in the Hebrew probably means some type of massive skin disease. And it not, afflicts, not just affects Pharaoh, it affects his entire household. Just think about your whole family is bearing the consequence of your one action here. So much like God calls Adam in Genesis 3, Pharaoh calls Abram to himself and says, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Then Pharaoh's contempt bubbles over, and you can't really see this in English. It's kind of, they tried to help out, but look at verse verse 19. It says, now then, here is your wife, take her and go. But in the Hebrew, it's just four words. Here, wife, take, go. It's kind of like when you're angry, like maybe with your kids and you just, you're trying not to say four letter words. So you, you got to be really precise with the words you use. And it's just like, stop now, bed. You know, that, that's, what, that's what's happening here. There's contempt that's bubbling over in Pharaoh. Abram is sent away in shame here though. And if you're thinking, well, Abram, he still gets to keep all that stuff though. He's still walking away with a Bentley. All of those possessions are going to only cause him tr- trouble. They are ill-gotten gain. We'll see next week in in the struggle with Lot's herdsmen, and more importantly, fast forward a couple chapters, this is where Hagar comes from, the Egyptian slave and servant that they use and abuse to try to take God's plan into their own hands and produce a child for themselves. So again, this story just leaves us afterwards feeling like dazed and confused. Like, what are we supposed to do after a story like this? Where do we go here? What I, we say all the time here that the whole Bible is all about Jesus. The whole point of the Bible is supposed to point us towards Jesus. Where's Jesus in this passage? No, I, need, I think we need to cling by this. The whole Bible is ultimately about the, Jesus, and this story points us to the good news about Jesus. It's not that Jesus is hiding behind a rock somewhere here in, in Genesis. See, all the Bible teaches us something about the nature of God, what he's like, and points us to the truth and the forward promises that are coming true ultimately in 
Jesus. This story has everything to do with Jesus. This story sets the scene of the plan of God that would rescue God's people. The story, the definitive story of the Old Testament. If you grew, if you, if you grew up in the church, you know one story a whole lot, and you probably watched like the 90s cartoon like I did, The Prince of Egypt, about it, about the exodus of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and being called out, being all the plagues sent down, all of that. This definitive story showing God's might and God's power and His mercy and showing that He is a redeeming God, a rescuing God. And this story is like a miniature foreshadowing of the Israelites in Egypt and Exodus. Look at these striking similarities. These will come up on the screen for us. First, the famine. The story later on in Genesis that will get started with Joseph God's people end up in Egypt because of a famine in the land. The first one's for Abram, then later for the whole family of Israel. Second, they go down to Egypt. This pattern of where do you go in times of trouble? Here, they're going down to Egypt. Third, they dwell in the land. Sarah is taken as Pharaoh's wife to dwell in the palace, whereas the Israelites were invited to dwell in the best part of the land. But we know what that dwelling ultimately meant for them. Enslavement. Sarah was not just taken into the palace and treated well. She was taken as Pharaoh's wife. Possessions. Abram acquires sheep and cattle, whereas in Exodus 47, they acquired property and were fruitful and increased greatly. This leads to the plagues, that Pharaoh gets struck with plagues, and then there's the ten plagues that happen in Egypt. Then finally, the confrontation. The classic scenes in Exodus of Pharaoh calling Moses to himself, and Moses saying, let my people go. This is what the Lord God of hosts says. And Pharaoh saying no, or maybe, and then switching the narrative on him back and forth until ultimately they are both called to go, take their stuff, and get out of here. And the same language is used. See, these stories have differences, but the major beats are the same. Exodus is the definitive story of Israelite people more than any other story in the Bible. If you were to have a conversation with an ancient Israelite and say like, what do you know about God? They would recount the the deeds of the Exodus before you. These are the reasons that we praise God. These are the reasons that we trust God. And we've seen God's power. We've seen his deliverance that only he can bring. But after the Exodus, the story of God's people still ends in another enslavement, in a foreign land to the Babylonians, and then this coming back to the land to rebuild a temple in ruins yet again, in shame yet again. We've got to ask the question, why? It's because God's people are not only need rescuing from their captivity, uh, from, from captivity that's uh, from people, but captivity to sin. They need a new heart to be able to truly walk in faith. All of humanity is in need of a rescuer who will come and free us from our enslavement to sin, give us a new heart, and restore us to God. It's into this waiting and this longing that the Old Testament ends. And then this is where Jesus shows up. This week in my studies, um, I was reading in in the Gospel of Matthew, and I began to see striking ways in which these promises and the the, the things in this story point forward to the truth about Jesus. The arrival of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew Matthew begins with a genealogy. That word toldot that I've used a couple times, it happens again at the beginning of Matthew 1. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the true and better son of Abraham who is announced as the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life, and unlike Abram, he trusts God completely. 
Even when faced with starvation in the desert, when Jesus is tempted, Jesus declares this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He trusts God in the midst of the famine. Jesus shows that he doesn't give up his bride either so that his own, uh, his own person could be connect, uh, protected. He lays down his life for the church. In, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, 15, when, he, when asked why his disciples don't fast, Jesus says this, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will be fast. Instead of devising a clever way to get himself out of trouble in the face of death, Jesus prays in Matthew 26, 39, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus willingly takes the plagues of death and punishment upon his own body and dies the death that we deserve for sin. Instead of shamefully being called to account for his trickery, like Abram, Jesus stands blameless and through the cross destroys our shame. He puts it to death. He puts death to death and it cannot hold him. And he eventually gives us the power of his own spirit, lavishly blessing us the very thing that we couldn't gain for himself, ourselves, God's very own presence with us. And then Jesus sends us. Like at the end of the story, the take, go, Jesus sends us like Abraham to go to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are gifted with the very presence of Jesus as we go. We get Jesus forever. Abram in the story couldn't be satisfied with the camels and the servants and all the blessings and all the riches. He, still, he was still hungering and wanting his wife, the one he was made for, and we are made for God, ultimately. Through the good news of the gospel, we are gifted with the very presence of God. Not only are we one to Jesus, if, we, if maybe we're hungering approval, done. You are God's child forever. Forgiveness, granted in the gospel. Love, unconditional, forever. In Jesus, we get everything. In the light of all this good news, and gifted with the presence of God, we must ask ourselves, what does this t- passage teach us about how to live? There's a lot of different things that we could focus on out of this. But there's three things I want to focus on. They'll come up on the screen. One is to see moments where you are tempted to fear as opportunities to trust. And second, to see your moments of failure as never beyond the power of God to rescue you from. And finally, see that your blessings from God are as more about relationships than riches. Yes, it's straight out of the passage, but let's keep driving ahead on this and see and ask the question, uh, see moments where you're tempted to fear as, as opportunities to trust. So where are you tempted to fear? What are your natural proclivities? What's like normal fears? For Abram, starvation was normal, like completely normative, right? What is the normal stuff of life that causes you to fear? Maybe it's a doctor's report. Maybe it's a test you have coming up. Maybe it's a promotion board that you're facing. Are you seeing those things as opportunities to trust God? Or you like me, a lot of times, I see those things as things that I, ways that I have to steal myself up, ways that I have to go and fix it, ways that I have to figure out on my own. And let me encourage you, Abram didn't mess up because he said to himself, you know what? I know better than God. He didn't say, I'm, I'm not going to trust God. I know better than him. It looks like he just forgot him. He missed out. He forgot. And how often do we do that? 
I'm guilty of this all the time. I just straight up forget I have a God that loves me, that, tr- uh, that I have the trust of, that wants to equip me and be with me all the time. And God has incredible patience with all of us. I think that when we actively acknowledge our needs and our fears to ourselves and before God, this is where God is able to show his strength in our lives. You don't see Abram going to God in this story. When the famine comes, you see Abram devising a plan. You see Abram trying to trick his way out of this, trying to figure it out on his own, and going down to Egypt and doing something incredibly stupid. See, the point is, acknowledge your fears. Say them out loud to God and to others. This is why all of us are made for community with one another. Yes, before God, community relationship with God, but also with one another. I know that for me, my greatest moments of growth, my greatest moments of vulnerability have been in places like a community group or discipleship group where I've just voiced things out loud that I trusted with those men or those women in that group to say that like, hey, I've got this fear. Hey, I have this doubt. Hey, I have this worry. And I met in that moment, not with condemnation or shame, but like, yeah, man, me too. I've been there. Let me pray for you. Like, let me hold you accountable to that thing. And guess what, guys? There's nothing crazy complicated about that. That's the, in the normal, average, daily stuff of life. And it's in those places God works so mightily. See, the second thing is, maybe you're here this morning, and, and you, you see your moments as failure as beyond the power of God to rescue you from. You know what you've done. You know the shame, you know the guilt that you should bear, you know of all of the, the deepest, darkest parts of your heart, because whether you're feeling like that or you're feeling like that next week, inevitably we will find ourselves down in Egypt after deciding to take matters into our own hands. All of life as followers, I don't know about any of you guys, I've not obtained perfection yet, like, if, if, if that's you, you can come up here and preach next week. Like, we'll, we'll, hear, we'll listen from you. <laughs> like, tell us your ways, please. So, but we've all been there. And whether it was shattered expectations for something that we thought it was going to go one way and then it went a different way, that we tried to fix for ourselves, or, or maybe it's giving into that sin pattern that you said you'd never do again. In those moments, we trust the God of the promise. He's going to be faithful to us no matter what, in the, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shame and all those things, our sin is not too great for God's gracious rescue. Think about how bad Abram got it here. He went down to Egypt. He didn't trust. He tried to trick his way out of everything. And he lost his wife and gave her over to another man. I don't know about y'all. I'm pretty sure you've never done that. That's pretty bad. That's a bad day. See, there may be earthly consequences for your actions, but you need to trust and believe that you can be completely, perfectly, and unconditionally restored to God as you confess your sin before Him. Hear the promise of 1 John 1, 9. It says this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. Jesus is faithful. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does that say some unrighteousness? Does that say most of your unrighteousness? No, that says all of your unrighteousness as we confess our sins to God. That's assuming that's going to be continual. Abram's going to mess it up again. We're going to see him walk in faith, and we're going to see him get it wrong. And guess what? 
That's the, the normal stuff of life for us too. But this, it's in this continual confession before God of our sins, God will be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And the last thing is that I want us to focus on, get practical for a moment, is to see our blessings from God as more about relationships than riches. Now, it's easy for us to see in like within the uh, kind of cultural waters that we live in, and uh, it's easy for folks to even call it out of the hyper-materialistic culture that we live in. Uh, whether that's like the easy targets of, you know, us, us wanting comfort all the time or the newest, best, this thing, or like how many of us have like an iPhone, whatever in your pocket. And, you know, and it's just like in crazy amounts of money that we spend on these ridiculously small things. Right. And how do you explain that other than, well, I'm just trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to keep, keep with the times, all of that stuff. But there's no arguing in this passage that this passage destroys the notion that material possessions are the point of human life. They're not. There's no arguing that we live in this materialistic world. And we see Abram get all these extravagant possessions from Pharaoh, but again, they're ill-gotten gain, and they cause him all kinds of trouble. Like, the, the saying goes true, right? More money, more problems. Like, it's just absolutely true. Sitting among a pile of this greatest possessions that he had, what do you think Abram wanted most? He wanted his wife back. He wanted that relationship restored. See, we are meant to see that our true blessings from God are not primarily about money. Our true blessings from God are not primarily about what we own. Our truest blessings from God come in the form of relationships. First with God himself, and then those friendships and family who God uh, granted to us. And so I think it's helpful. You've probably seen something like this before in, if you've grown up in the church at all. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, there's a, a way in which we are to prioritize our relationships with those around us. First and foremost, um, we should at number one above all else, prioritize our relationship with God above all else. And there's like no debating that one. Relationship with God above all else. Spend your time, energy, focus, all that, in that relationship, pouring in relationship with God. Second with that is with your family. So if you're married, it'd be your spouse and your kids. If you're not married, you, you still got a mom and a dad. You still got aunts and uncles. That's family there. Beyond that, we have friendships, discipleship relationships, people that you're involved deeply with, people in your community group, then missional relationships of folks outside of that. And then finally, it's everything else, whether that's work, your hobbies, you know, your gym bros, whatever that is. Like That's the rightful ordering of these relationships in your life. Now, I will say to the, those who are single in the room, this might look a little bit different because you will need to be very intentional about the discipleship relationships in your life. The people that you're asking to, to mentor you or come alongside of you or to uh, invest in you, the best advice I ever received as a single guy when I was younger was find a man who you see love his wife really well, loves Jesus really well, you see him leading well in his home, and just hang out with him as much as possible. Just go get in his community group. Go, go serve on the service team that he's at. Uh, go go you know, do whatever you can with him. Ask him to go fishing. Ask him to read a book with you. And most of the time, those dudes are going to be busy. Those dudes are probably going to have other people that they're uh, investing in their life. And so you've got to be a little patient if you're going to get some time with those dudes. And so I want to encourage all of us if, if, if you are hungering after just friendships 
I know this is like a, I read an article the other day about this, and there's like a friendship epidemic right now. Of all the epidemics that we're in right now, we're in a friendship epidemic as well. Like, I think over the past 50 years, it's gone from saying like, uh, on statistical data that people would say they had seven close friendships in their life, it's down, now down to one or two at all, if at all. So uh, you go into those places of life, into your friendships, into your community groups, and seek after deep friendship. Seek after those things. See, the only time in the book, uh, the beginning of the book of Genesis and the story of creation where God said something is not good, it's when the man is alone. And he wasn't at that moment saying primarily just about marriage that he's alone, but he was completely alone without relationships, without an equal, without people to pour into him and to, uh, to be one that's like him. So if you're looking for deep friendships, I'd like to welcome you to join a community group here at Veritas. Join us on Saturdays for a Bible study. Um, and look for others that will invest in you and just, just be a good friend. Now I want to turn and talk to those of us that are married in the room. Now, I think that Abram's already given us the like, worst game plan possible for investing in your marriage here. You know, <laughs> it's encourage lies, you know, pretend you're not married, and then uh, give her away to another man. Uh, pretty much the, the, the worst pep talk for marriage there possible. So if, as long as you just do the opposite of those, I think we'll be doing all right, you know? Just don't be like Abraham in this. So uh, as followers of Jesus, I think we're especially called to serve one another and sacrifice for one another. In Ephesians 5, that whole chapter is about how men and women are to serve one another and to, to love one another in a way that emulates the relationship between Christ and the church. The enemy wants you to devalue your marriage. And stats show nowadays that Christians get divorced at almost the exact same rates as those who don't follow Jesus. In a nationwide study this week, I was looking, it said the number one reason that marriages end in divorce today, in 20, you know, last year in 2020, the number one reason was lack of commitment. Just lack of investment and commitment to the marriage itself. So just caring about your marriage counts. Investing in your marriage, it just counts. For all of us, we are made for community. And if you're married here in this room, the one thing you can know that like, I know God has called me to at least one area in this life, and he's called me to one place. It is to your spouse. God has called you there. If she said, I do on the altar, she's the one. If he said, I do on the altar, he is the one. We have nowhere else to look. God has called you to that. Invest in that. Give your life over to that. The New Testament call men to lay down their lives so that their wives can live. What better picture do we have of the gospel and how we can walk in it in true masculinity by laying down our lives so our wives can thrive. And for wives in the room, like loving, supporting, and investing in a relationship with your husband. And I, I know that there are some rocky relationships in this room. We're going to mess it up with one another. We're going to have to rebuild trust in times when things are really, really hard. I want to encourage you guys. I'm a pastor, and I am not a relationship therapist. I am not a professional counselor. And although I can point you to Jesus and point you to Scripture, sometimes we need outside help. There is no, no way that anyone should ever look down on you for going to, to marital counseling. By raising your hand and saying, like, our marriage needs help. We can't do it ourselves. It's not okay for your marriage to be alone. Just so you know, your marriage is not a lone ranger. It can't make it by itself. It was made for community. Marriages aren't 
will not thrive in isolation with just themselves. You need friends. You need people that can pour into you. You need people that can point you both to Jesus. So then it comes with everything else in our lives. So these, all of these relationships like work and hobby and you know, people you play video games with online or whatever, they're at the bottom of the list, okay, as far as investment. I think that might need to get said every once in a while, right? So this all comes back to these opportunities to trust like Abram. Because whether right now you're in the midst of a trial like Abram's famine, or you're coming out of a famine, or the other option is you're about to head back into a famine. Trials are coming, y'all. They're coming. You're either in one, coming out of one, or about to go into one. Such is all of the normal things of life. And whether that trial's in your marriage or a bad phone call about your plans or a present health condition, God wants you to trust Him. This is an opportunity for you to trust God. God wants to use others around you to remind you of the promises that he's made, remind you of the ways that you're called to walk. And when we do fail, God wants to graciously uh, rescue us from that. And more than likely, he will encourage you through those closest relationships around you. Those men and women that you've invested with, your spouse, or maybe it's the word of a parent. Maybe it's those relationships that call you to trust in Jesus yet again and see that he's a God who keeps his promises and he will rescue you. I pray that we would move towards that and that we would grow together in a church in these types of relationships. Let me pray that we believe this truth and live into it. Father, um, I pray that this morning uh, would be a morning where we remember your goodness and your kindness and not our ability to get it right. Uh, God, I pray that you empower us to invest where we need to invest in relationships and where uh, we get it wrong, where we blow it, where we find ourselves back yet again down in Egypt, having made a terrible decision yet again, we would remember that our, um, you are the God who rescues. You are the God who sees us in the midst of our trouble. And there's no sin too great that you can't redeem us from and rescue us from. Yes, there may be worldly consequences, but you rescue, you redeem, and you restore. May we believe that this morning. Would you give us faith for those who feel weary this morning who are in the midst of relationship struggles and trials. Maybe their, their marriage is just in a hard spot. God, I pray, um, would you bring flourishing where there is a desert? Um, God, would you bring... Um, dry bones of relationships back into armies of rejoicing men and women partnered together on mission. God, I pray that you would um, again come through with your promises uh, to bless the world uh, through this good news of Jesus in the gospel. That we would hold that firmly um, and that we would value the things around us in the ways that you would call us to do. We pray that in your name. Amen.